Hello, and welcome to the Asta La Visa Baby podcast, a deep dive into U.S. immigration law and its relationship to fictitious characters in television and film. My name is Shai Dayan. I am an immigration attorney with Gibney, Anthony, and Flaherty, and I'm based in Los Angeles, California. And joining me today, as he does for every episode, he's also an immigration attorney. He's also with Gibney, Anthony, and Flaherty, but he's based in New York, and he always tells the truth, even when he's lying. It's Mr. Roderick Potts. Hey, I, I loved you, Shy. Rod. <laughs> How are to, you? Great, great to, to see, see you, you again. again. Yes. Great to see you again. It has been some time. Some time. We want to apologize to all the tens of listeners out there for uh, the fact that we weren't able to get a May episode out to you. There were some travel conflicts, scheduling conflicts. Life got crazy. Life but- got crazy. And look, Shai, the important thing is, Shy. Shy spent some time in the Holy Land. Yes. And researching for, a future episode. Yes. And for those of you who are mystified by what that means, I was in a small country in the Middle East called Israel, where mm. my, my family is from. Yeah, I was researching a, a character we're going to do next month, but we'll get back to that later. We'll get back to that later. And, yeah. That's, but welcome back, Shy. Thank we're you. All happy to have you home. Thank you. Inside. As we missed our May episode, we have an extra jam-packed double the fun episode for June. I mean, this is going to be a, we this have, is going yeah. to be something, something this else. Is, we're coming right out of the gate, swinging and shooting and punching. Oh my goodness! Yeah, in, in, in a nice a, way though. In a nice way, we we hope in a nice way. Yeah, but this, yeah, yeah. This, this is a heavy episode. Heavy, heavy. So, so everybody, put your put your your big boy pants on because things are getting real today. Um, but before we get into the episode, Rod. I want to just remind everybody, you know, if you have not done so already, please, please subscribe to the podcast and rate us. We really need those ratings. It's going to help a lot. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. You can find us on all the major podcast streaming platforms. Rod, where are we? So we're all over the place. We are on Apple. We're on Spotify. We're on Stitcher, Google Play, Amazon, and et cetera. Et cetera. Always on et cetera. We love to hear from our listeners, all of you. We get emails and, and we really enjoy listening. It's reading them. Rod, what's the email address where our, our fans and everybody can just get in contact with us? So our email address is hasta la visa, H-A-S-T-A-L-A-V-I-S-A at Gibney, G-I-B-N-E-Y dot com. It's an easy email address. We've said it many times. So at this point, it should be in everybody's, you know, contacts. That's right. Askthevisa.givney.com. <laughs> yeah. Slide into our DMs um, if you can. Via if you email. can. Whatever if you can do. Do they have that? Where We, we don't, I don't We don't know. We don't know. We don't yeah. know. We don't, we don't know. DM but, but, so much, but we could, if you like we DMs, we can do DMs. We could. Yeah, we, can fi- we can figure that out. We can meet you halfway, as they say. <laughs> Um, so, so let's talk about what we do here. So as a reminder, and what do we do here? Yeah. Yeah. I got to tell you. And for anybody who hasn't listened before, (laughs) this is the most fun way to consume us immigration law, hands down. And basically every episode we focus on a particular movie or television show that features a foreign national character living in the U S What we do is we do a deep dive into the movie or television show focusing on the specific foreign national character. We use our immigration detective skills to figure out what the character's U.S. visa status may have been, what problems or issues the character may have faced living in the U.S., and we're going to talk about a hypothetical consultation if the character came to us for advice. And as always, we try to imagine that the characters are living in a 2020 U.S. immigration world, unless, of course, we have a situation where we have to go back in time and talk about historical events. And I think that might happen today. It probably could. And and just jump in real quick. We imagine a 2022 
What did I say? Situation. You said 2020, and which is it's close. Wow, enough. wow, yeah, wow. I was thinking yeah. of like pre-COVID. That's probably. But why you know, I said given it. the amount, given the number of of cocktails we've had before this uh, recording, it's <laughs> yes, fine. Yes, it's okay. It's okay, fine. thanks yeah. for correcting yeah. me. So we've yes. had a lot of mojitos because <laughs> yes. this is a Cuban-inspired episode. <laughs> and just to to let everybody know, this is the first of two episodes that are going to um, be our Hasta La Visa Baby Podcast Host Heritage Series. Digging it. heritage, yeah, heritage it's, it's a, series. It's a, a two, heritage series, a two month, two part delving into our heritage, cultural, cultural roots. Yeah. So, if anyone out there wasn't aware, Rod's cultural roots are Cuban, and si. that's why we're doing a Cuban focused episode today. And my cultural roots are Israeli. So next month we're going to be doing an Israeli focused episode. Absolutely. And and just to be fair. Neither one of these films are the greatest depiction of these cultures. Probably not. Probably to be not. fair. But but these are the movies we've this. These are the films we've chosen. We haven't you know, we in, apart from making a film ourselves, we're going to have to go into the catalog of what's been done already. And that's why we're doing this. We haven't yet had the opportunity to make a film. But when we do. Oh, it's going to be a Cuban Israeli masterpiece. Absolutely. So so Rod. Let's get yes. into it. Uh, Let's today, do, Shy. Let's today, do it. Today on the Oscar Baby podcast, we are Here going we are. to be talking about a movie called Scarface. Scarface. Rod, will you tell us everything we need to know about this absolutely incredible movie? Por supuesto, mi amigo. <laughs> Thank you. So Scarface was released in 1983 and was directed by Brian De Palma and was written by Oliver Stone. It tells the story of Cuban refugees, Tony Montana, played by Al Pacino and his friend Manny. They both arrive penniless in Miami during a historical event in 1980 known as the Mariel Boatlift. After being interrogated by U.S. immigration officials, Tony and Manny are sent to a, a sort of a, a camp to await processing for their claims of asylum. After committing an assassination in the camp on behalf of a Cuban uh, drug kingpin uh, who's based in Miami, whose name is Frank Lopez, uh, their green cards are issued and they start working as dishwashers at a restaurant in Miami. You tell your guys in Miami, your friend, it'd be a pleasure. I kill a communist for fun, but for a green card, I'm going to carve him up real nice. Tony is extremely driven and doesn't want to remain in his position as a restaurant worker. He convinces this drug kingpin, uh, Frank Lopez, to trust him with a cocaine deal with some Colombians at a Miami hotel. The deal goes horrifically wrong, but Tony ends up with both at the end. Tony ends up with both the drugs and the money and presents them to Frank Lopez. This is tough. Two keys. It cost my friend Angel his life. Here's some money. My gift to you. I'm sorry about your friend, Tony. This starts a quick and fast rise for Tony to the very top of the drug and criminal underworld in Miami. Now, while initial working uh, directly under Frank, Tony starts working independently from Frank after a meeting in Bolivia with drug lord Alejandro Souza. Upset that Tony's gone rogue, Frank attempts to have Tony killed at a Miami nightclub. Uh, the murder attempt fails, and Tony kills Frank and takes over his business. He even marries Frank's partner, Elvira, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Tony then builds a multi-million dollar drug empire and constructs a large, heavily guarded estate. During this time period, Tony and his new wife, Elvira, become very heavy cocaine users. In 1983, a sting operation by federal agents results in Tony being charged with tax evasion with an inevitable prison sentence. Bolivian drug lord and business partner Alejandro Sosa offers to use his government connections to keep Tony out of prison, but only if Tony assassinates an activist intending to expose Sosa's drug operations. Tony then travels to New York City to carry out the assassination with Sosa's henchmen. However, when the activist is unexpectedly joined by his wife and children, Tony calls off the hit. The henchman refuses to back down, and Tony ends up killing Sosa's henchman. 
At the same time, Tony's drug use becomes completely out of control, and his marriage to Elvira is a complete disaster. They're both, by this point, complete junkies, and they're constantly arguing and fighting. Tony ends up killing his best friend, Manny, when he finds out that Manny's been in a romantic relationship with his younger sister, Gina. And then infuriated by Tony's inability to carry out the assassination plan on the activist in New York, are you all following us? Alejandro Souza sends a hit squad to Tony's Miami estate to kill him. Completely out of his mind, after a completely uh, impressive cocaine binge, Tony puts up an incredibly long and violent resistance against the hit squad until he's finally gunned down and killed in spectacular fashion. So I think it's safe to say that a lot of things happened in this movie. This is a huge movie. It really defies description. Really. And, and listeners, if you think that that description was long, there's a lot more that happened. And we just tried yeah. to focus on the most important uh, parts of the yeah. movie. So right. we tried to cut out the fluff, but uh, this movie is all killer, no filler. Yeah. And emphasis on the killer. Really. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a, a hectic movie. Uh, it is not soothing. Um, there's it's, it, it, if, if <laughs> I don't I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't smoke. And if I I feel like I wanted to smoke a lot of cigarettes while watching this movie because it's insane. Yeah. It's a frenetic film. Yeah, it's been described actually by several people I know. It's been described as an extremely masculine film, which is which, yeah, which 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 I cannot disagree the, with. The old, it, the yeah, you know, the old textbook version of masculine, definitely for sure. Yeah, I, and, I, and in that vein, many of my female friends have found this film they, they don't find it accessible, unapproachable. Yeah, yeah. I they, agree. they just they, they get nothing from it. And um, I, I, I'm I agree. a I'm a sensitive guy myself. There, there are times yeah. when I find it. Uh, yeah. unapproachable but we'll, we'll get to all we'll get yeah, to that yeah, yeah. later in our outtake we have but, we uh, have a, we have a format to get to yeah. so this point yeah. of the podcast what i like to do is i like to mention some interesting <laughs> facts about the movie. and i love when you do i yeah. love the research you do Shai. yeah yeah i, love I do these, this this I love is these facts. this is not just for the listeners it's for you as well yeah, so absolutely. so here's some good ones scarface was a contemporary remake of a 1932 gangster film of the same name and the character tony montana was a take on the main character of the 1932 film, Tony Camonte, who was in turn inspired by the legendary Al Capone. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the original Scarface film, which is right. a 30s film. Yeah, right, right. Uh, Old Michelle, gangster picture. Yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer, who, who played Elvira, she was an unknown at the time of casting. And other actresses considered for the role were Gina Davis, Carrie Fisher, Melanie Griffith, Kim Bassinger, Sharon Stone, and even Sigourney Weaver, a who's wow, who just, of, of 1980s power. Yeah, absolutely. Just and, the, the most important actors at that time. Yeah. And Michelle Pfeiffer beat them all. Um, Fantastic. The film was written by a, a man you might know. His name is Oliver Stone. And at the time, he was battling his own cocaine addiction. Big uh, surprise. Big yeah, surprise. He, he moved to Paris <laughs> to finish the script, explaining that it was the only way he could get off the drug. And by the way, the script plays out. Not sure if he got it off completely. Not sure. But but uh, you know, he, they say, write what you know. So. Write what you know. Write what you know. Yeah. The character of Manny, who was played by Stephen Bauer, was the only actual Cuban in the principal cast. Very interesting. Yeah. Fantastic. Powdered baby laxative was used as the fake substance for cocaine in this film. And legend has it, or internet research that I do has it, that Pacino's nasal passage was minorly damaged due to the snorting of large quantities of baby laxative during the course of filming. So warning out there, don't snort anything. I'm not sure how to feel about this fact, whether I'm I'm intrigued or disturbed or just a little bit of everything. There's a, there's a lot in that fact. Yeah. 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 And if De Palma wasn't big enough as a director, listen to this. Sure. The, the gunfight scene at the end of the film also includes a single camera shot directed by Steven Spielberg. And Mr. Steven Spielberg. He, he was just visiting at the time. And, and they course. said, here, do this. Yeah. And he said, yeah, sure. Despite being set in the wonderful city of Miami, Florida, most of the film was actually shot in the city where I live, Los Angeles. Because get this, the Miami Tourist Board, they declined requests to film it there in fear it would deter tourism due to the movie's themes of drugs and crime. Holds up. Yeah. Final fact. Final fact. uh, Let's do it. The initial critical reception was very negative due to its excessive violence, profanity, and graphic drug use. 
but in the noticed. yeah yeah in the years that followed the critics have reappraised it and now it is considered to be one of the greatest gangster films ever made this is a film that's referenced in hip hop it's referenced in pop mm-hmm. culture i mean this is a this is this is a favorite tony montana is a cult figure he is at this point and 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 we'll get to that a little bit more sure right? sure we'll talk about that later in the episode about it with our takeaways i and, think about how we feel about that and now to talk about tony montana rod this is what where you come in again you are going to give the listeners a complete breakdown of uh the character of tony montana who was played by al pacino so tony montana again yes as you point out shy played by al pacino is a cuban citizen who arrived in the u.s as part of the 1980 mariel boatlift referred to as a marialito when he first arrives in the United States, he makes two claims to the immigration officers. The first is that his father was an American, so he has a right to a green card or citizenship. Where'd you learn to speak the English, Tony? Uh, in a school. And my father, he was uh, from the United States. Just like you, you know. He was a Yankee. Uh, he used to take me a lot to the movies, you know. I learned. I watched the guys like... Uh, and the second is that he is a political prisoner looking for asylum in the United States. I'm Tony Montana, a political prisoner from Cuba. So his Cuban past is not entirely clear. However, the U.S. immigration officials identify a tattoo on his hand that indicates that he was an assassin while imprisoned in Cuba. At one point, his mother makes reference to his criminal past in Cuba as well. Judging by his propensity towards and apparent joy in committing crimes and killings, it's obvious that Tony was most likely a criminal back in Cuba. His transformation into a homicidal drug lord is not a very large departure to the person we first meet when we see him detained in Miami. During the course of the film, Tony reveals himself as an ambitious and ruthless gangster who stops at nothing to make it in the criminal underworld in America. His addiction to cocaine, his extreme paranoia, and eventual double-crossing of the Bolivian drug lord Alejandro Souza eventually results in Tony's death. I'm trying to think of the right word to describe Tony Montana. Uh, brash, would you say? I mean, this guy is a I, I i would never i don't know that brash does it like I, like this guy's insane, insane brash too much where like, do, where does this confidence and and arrogance come from i mean this guy yeah, is is out of control bravado, as they would say right you know and yeah it's 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 interesting question yeah he's an enigma really well yeah. Speaking of enigmas, we got to talk about his visa situation. Yeah, how did he get a green card? How how did did he he get a green card? How did he come in? What's what's with his immigration status? That's the point of this podcast. We talk about fictitious characters and we talk about in real life what kind of visa status in the U.S. they would have had. So let's get into it. Let's get into time. It's time to talk about immigration. Okay, ready? Let's do it. So, so Roderick, in the movie, Tony gets a green card while living in a Miami refugee camp, internment camp, something like that. And he gets the green card after he and his friend Manny, they commit a politically motivated murder at the request of drug boss Frank Lopez. So this implied that Frank Lopez had political connections, which expedited Tony's green card process. But what if Tony had to go through the process without any political connections? I'm thinking, you know, what type of laws in the U.S. would have allowed him to become a green card holder or what we call a lawful permanent resident? So can you let us in on on how a Cuban in Tony's situation without political connections might have received a green card? Sure. Now, I don't know about a Tony in I don't know, but a Cuban in Tony's specific situation. Right. But however, let's just say a Cuban in general. Right. We'll get to Tony's specific situation later. But So the Cuban Adjustment Act passed in 1966 allowed certain Cuban natives or citizens living in the United States to apply to become green card holders. And what were the requirements of this 1966 act? So there are a few specific requirements that are laid out fairly cleanly. One is that you must be a native or citizen of Cuba. Two is that you must have been expected and admitted into the U.S., by an immigration officer or paroled into the US, all of this after January 1st of 1959. 
you must be physically present in the US for at least one year at the time that you filed the green card application. You must be physically present in the US at the time you filed the application. You must be admissible to the US for lawful permanent residence or eligible for a waiver of inadmissibility. Those are somewhat technical details. And the last and maybe most important is that you merit the favorable exercise of discretion by U.S. citizenship and immigration services. And thank you for laying out those elements so nicely, as you always do. Regarding the elements that you talk about, I'm interested in how you prove that you're a Cuban citizen, because you have to prove that you're a Cuban citizen. I imagine, you know, there must have been nationals of other Hispanic countries that may they might have tried to claim that they're Cuban. So evidence of Cuban citizenship, it's probably the most essential part of eligibility for the Cuban Adjustment Act. It can generally be established by either a Cuban birth certificate or a Cuban passport. And what if you are a Cuban who illegally entered the U.S., meaning that you were not inspected and admitted by an actual immigration officer? Can you still be eligible to apply for a green card based upon this act? So no, you would not be. Um, The entry to the United States must have been lawful. So those who were not expected or paroled into the U.S. uh, wouldn't be qualified under the act. Generally, paroled means you show up at the border without proper documentation. And if you can prove Cuban citizenship, normally you would be paroled. So but so if you snuck in, swam over, whatever, if you snuck in, you were not lawfully admitted. No, you would not be eligible. This is good to know. This is good to know for all the swimmers out there. So let's say you can prove all the elements outlined above, all of the elements. Does that mean you are automatically going to get a green card? So not necessarily. As we mentioned before, the big one is the fable of exercise of discretion. So in the final analysis, the applicant really has the burden of proving that he or she warrants that favorable exercise of discretion. So If there are questions concerning any sort of criminal background or any sort of other what you or I might call sketchiness, Mm. um, the green card application could actually be denied. So this gives a lot of power to the immigration officer overseeing the case, because basically, Mm -hmm. if they don't like the person who's applying for for legitimate reasons, that whole application could be denied. Absolutely. So so let's talk about how we can apply the Cuban Adjustment Act of 1966 to Tony. Let's think about it. Yeah, let's think about it. So I have a question for you, Rod. Do you think Tony, the person that we meet in the movie, Mr. Brash himself, do you think he could have met the requirements of the Cuban Adjustment Act? So offhand, I think there's probably a couple of things that would be working against Tony. So first off, he likely had a criminal past in Cuba. Mm -hmm. I think that's clear. Yeah, I think it's clear. I mean, the tattoo is one thing, but, you know, he he appears to have lied Initially, you know, in that scene where he's talking to immigration officials and he's claiming political asylum, he appears to probably have lied in that interrogation on more than one occasion. You know, when he's talking to those folks, he seems to have lied about his criminal background. He seems to have lied about having family in the United States. And he may even have lied about whether or not his father was an American citizen. Yeah, I Um, mean, he told a lot of tales and a lot of the tales he told were not true. And you, you shouldn't lie to the U.S. immigration officers. Not a good not a good idea. Lying to an immigration officer is the same thing as lying to any federal officer and is a crime, which would likely make him ineligible. Leads to trouble. Um, Right. So we don't really know what kind of evidence Tony would have had to show that he was a Cuban national. He might have had a passport, perhaps, or some other documentation to show that he was. But, um, you know, it doesn't appear that he had been living in the United States when, you know, when he was in that camp where he killed Mr. Rabenga. We don't know that he was there for a year. It's not entirely clear from watching the film how long he was there. It didn't seem like a year, but we could be wrong about that. And even if none of these things had been going against Tony, he was basically sort of an arrogant jerk. And it's yeah. not, his behavior didn't betray to me the kind of behavior that would have warranted the favorable discretion of an immigration officer. Yeah. He had a lot of, what's your, what's your professional experience? (laughs) My professional experience with respect to Tony Montana. Yeah. I think without Without... Frank Lopez pulling strings, it doesn't appear that Tony would have been able to benefit from the Cuban adjustment act. So Frank Lopez, he made it happen for Tony because of political connections somehow. So interestingly enough, a statute, 
in part written for Tony, he would not have been able to benefit from. No, no. And and here's the thing. So in the movie, he does get a green card. He has a green card. He does. Are you free and clear? When you get a green card, are you free and clear to do whatever you want? Or if you commit crimes as a green card holder, can that green card be taken away from you? It can be. So with all of the the drug criminal enterprise activity that Tony was involved sure. with, he yeah. could have had that green card taken away from him right away. Throughout the rest of the film, yeah. I, I was thinking about that the entire rest yeah. of the movie. That, that, yeah. Look at what immigration law has done to us. Instead of enjoying a movie for for yeah. for what it is we enjoy it for uh legal immigration aspects of yeah, it. Yeah, we we both watch this movie under uh some level of duress, I believe, right? Lots of lots of duress, always duress. Yeah. But Tremendous we make it through. Duress. We make it yeah. through. And so um, so yeah, 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 so we yeah. figured out that he probably didn't he probably didn't benefit from the Cuban Adjustment Act, but we know now we know about the Cuban Adjustment Act, we know that it did apply to Cubans at the time. Right. But why don't we uh why don't we Think a little bit about more, like, you know, Tony Montana was a, a mob kingpin. Right? A mob kingpin. And Tony Montana was played by Al Pacino. Al Pacino played two, more than two, but two of the most iconic mob kingpins he ever played were uh, mm-hmm. Tony Montana. And then a guy, maybe you heard of him named Michael Corleone from the Godfather series. Let's do a little bit of Tony Montana versus Michael Corleone. Who was the most successful crime boss? Was it Michael Corleone of The Godfather or was it Tony Montana from Scarface? I am going to be the lawyer for Michael Corleone. Roderick of Cuban descent, he has to. He has no other choice but to advocate for Al Pacino's Tony Montana. So uh, the uh, unenviable uh, position. Yeah. This is going to be difficult. You're the underdog. So tell yeah. me why Tony Montana was the superior gangster to Michael Corleone. All right. Your time so starts I, now. There's a couple of quick things. A couple of quick things. So first of all, Tony, clearly the more fun of the two. Absolutely. He's the more quotable. He gets out there. He mixes it up. He has a lot more fun. He does more for himself than michael ever did now i understand that the traditional role of a crime boss is more of that of a corporate manager right so they don't like to get their hands dirty but i kind of like that tony got in there and mixed it up on his own certainly Uh, did tony is an eminently quotable individual there's (laughs) so many great quotes from the movie he's the subject of so many great laughs now there are some drawbacks you know he was far more substance addicted i believe than michael ever uh, betrayed himself to be at least in the films i would argue that tony's heights uh-huh. are higher interesting not drug related i'm talking about just financial and power are higher than michael's ever got to Interesting. Can but, you can you elaborate on that? Talk about some so, of the things that he acquired, where he got to. I mean, Tony had a tiger. He had a example. tiger. He had a tiger. He had a tremendous home. The scenes, those great montage scenes with just the amounts of cash, cash. he made the bankers nervous by how much cash he was bringing in. I don't want to help yeah. you out, but he also was driving an iconic Porsche 928, which is an icon of the 1980s. Uh, beautiful he car. He sure was. He sure was. He also had a great hat. Great hat, and, great um, hat, great hat, great clothes. And he had he had what seems to be towards the end of the film an unlimited amount of cocaine for his own personal use. Plus, so um, you know, and he had a nice big house in Miami. You know, I, I would say I would say he did pretty well for himself as a boss. He did get into trouble. He did, and it he didn't did. end well for him. Didn't but, end well. Uh, so, do you rest your case? Uh, that's all I have. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so so that was a good argument. That was a good argument. And um, here we go. I'm going to attempt to blow you out of the water. All right. Let's okay. do it. I love it. I have a few points here. Number one, Michael Corleone, college educated. The man had a uh, an educated uh, a background, and that made him a little bit more refined than uh, Tony. I think was that he college educator. He was. He was, was, he was a co- uh, he was a college educated person. I remember Sonny said something about Sonny you said being nice a college, college boy. boy. College yeah. boy. College boy. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Let's, number let's two. Assume. Number let's two. Take. Besides the fact that Michael's family were uh, criminals, he came from a more stable family and a more stable upbringing. They had family dinners. He had a mother and father who raised him. There seemed to be a lot of love mm. in the Corleone household. Family 
was a very, very important thing to the Corleones. And uh, not fair to hold that against Tony, though. That's beyond his it's control. It's just, it's just facts. Facts are but facts, my friend. The, the, it's a fact. That's fine. That's fine. Let's. Yeah. Uh, Michael was born in the U.S., so he understands U.S. culture, which is very important for being a uh, a businessman. I think Michael. I would, would, I would argue, as immigration attorneys, we should be sensitive to those who were not born in the United States. For your not argument, for your argument, you could be sensitive. For mine, I'll be insensitive. So thank you very much. <laughs> I think I think Michael was a lot more even tempered than Tony. Clearly, I, I, clearly, I think clearly. That, I'll give you that one. Let's talk about longevity. Uh, Tony was basically had a three year run, maybe one of the greatest <laughs> three year runs in the history of gangsters. Yeah. But Michael, right. Michael was doing this for. I mean. 20, yeah. 30, 40 years. The man, the that, man that that candle which burns twice as bright burns yeah. for half as long. Yeah. Ne- he never Surely. he never really got caught in the Godfather 2. I think there was some congressional inquiries into the Corleone family and he had to testify, but I don't believe yeah. he was arrested. No, he kind of retreats into Godfather 3, which is yeah. uh, you know, yeah. yeah. No, so yeah, I, he's not gunned down not, in the same way. Not gunned down. And then finally, I think he had better taste in women. He married the uh, the Italian girl in Italy, and uh, he married Kay. Apollonia. Yeah, Apollonia, and, and, and he, he married Kay. Kay. And yeah, they I, they we, were you know. Little... I, so we we didn't really get to know too much about Elvira. It was uh, scratch the surface sort of information that we got about her. Uh, I will a, give you. I will junkie. give you that. I will give you that. On the whole, I will agree with you. I advocated on behalf of Tony, but I will agree with you that I think Michael was the more successful criminal. Boss. Therefore, I win. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, but but th- this Michael is, wins. It's really. not a comp. It's Michael wins. Mister Mister Mario Puzo wins I, at the I, end of the day. I did represent him. I did represent him. You pretty did. Well. You did. did. You did. But I, I, yes, uh, Michael. Michael's facts I, are better than. If Tony's. this was a Supreme Court decision, I'm thinking seven two in favor of Sean. But I, I will always maintain Tony more fun. Michael was. I'll a give you that. Guy. No, Michael was. He uptight. was not a fun guy. Very uptight. You know. So that's I'd rather it. if I was going to go out for the night with either Tony or Michael, I'd much rather be with Tony for the night. I could end up dead, but much more fun. <laughs> much that, more that, fun. Says, at, that's, that says everything we need to know about you. You're at the Babylon Club. <laughs> you're having a great time. You know, good times. All right. Well, but, well listeners, but however, listeners, if you don't agree with us, send us an email. Tell us why you send think an email. Michael or send Tony was better. Yeah. yeah. One of us could be wrong or both. 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 But so. Now that we've uh, settled that Michael Corleone was the most successful criminal boss out of the two, let's talk about a very um, historical event that is given to us and presented to us right at the outset of the movie. It's something called the Marielle Boatlift of 1980. So during the opening sequences of the movie, we learn that Tony arrived in the U.S. in 1980 via an event known as the Marielle Boatlift. And this was an historically accurate event that took place. But did the movie get the details correct? That's what we want to understand. So, Roderick, I'm going to talk to you about what the opening crawl in the movie says, and Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about it from that point of view. So the opening crawl in the movie says, and I quote, in May 1980, Fidel Castro opened the harbor at Mariel, Cuba, with the apparent intention of letting some of his people join their relatives in the United States. Now, Rod, is that accurate? So, you know, on its face, I think we're going to need, a, before before we get into that, I think we're going to need a little more context about uh, the Maryland boat lift, right? So at the time of the opening scenes in the movie, right, the, the law in Cuba from the revolution up until that point had been that individuals wishing to depart Cuba had to obtain an exit visa or an exit permit. This was nearly impossible in most cases because the Cuban government was not really in the habit of granting these visas or permits. So because of this, a growing number of Cubans were presenting themselves uh, over the years at embassies uh, of foreign countries in the capital, Havana, asking for asylum. And after a specific incident in the spring of 1980 at the Peruvian embassy in Havana, right, that led to a massive riot, a confrontation with Cuban police and the death of a Cuban police officer. After that, roughly 10,000 Cubans started to demonstrate outside of the embassy begging for asylum. And Fidel Castro declared the port of Mariel, Cuba would be open for anybody who chose to leave, provided they had somebody to pick them up. 
Thank you. That that context is very important to to understand what what the Mariel boat lift boat lift was. So truncated and simplistic, but that's more or less how it. Right, happened. right. We can't yeah. we can't go into everything, but it's definitely more than the movie gave us. Sure. Next, the crawl states, and I quote: "Within seventy two hours, three thousand U.S. boats were headed for Cuba." Is that accurate? I did some research. I couldn't find numbers. I don't know where they got these numbers. I couldn't find numbers either to corroborate or dispute. But news of the Castro announcement did spread quickly, and a large number of Cuban expats living in the United States chartered boats of all sizes. I mean, we're talking people chartered fishing boats in Miami, go pick up my friends or go pick up my relatives. So people did charter boats of all sizes to rush to Maryland to pick up their friends, relatives, and loved ones. And the thing is, when Castro made this announcement, no one knew how long this would be for at the time. So people did act quickly, whether or not it's as dramatic as within 72 hours, 3,000 boats were headed for Cuba. I don't know, but it could be. We I imagine know. I imagine there were a lot it, of it, uh, Miami is not that far from 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 it's Cuba. Not unreasonable. Not it's unreasonable. Not unreasonable. Right. The information got out very quickly and the Cuban American community did respond. Yeah. And the crawl scene also states, it soon became evident that Castro was forcing the bone odors to carry back with them, not only their relatives, but the dregs of his jails of the 125,000 refugees that landed in Florida, 25,000 had criminal records. Is this accurate? So I did some extensive research to really try to find out whether or not this was accurate. And I found some wildly divergent numbers, but the assertion that approximately 20% of the individuals were criminals is almost entirely untrue. There were obviously a lot of, there was a lot of xenophobic sentiment at the time. There were a lot of rumors at the time that this was the case. A lot of views on the part of Americans, uh, the news heavily concentrated on any criminal Cubans that came over as a product of the Mariel boat lift. This was very much an accepted perception of the time. Cuban Americans in Miami generally viewed this as an expungement of Cuban dissidents at uh-huh. the time, is what I understand. I, I, I had a, my, you know, as we know, my father is Cuban, and um, I had a chat with him about the Mariel boat lift, and we discussed, you know, what was happening at the time and and what was the view. You know, some Cubans, you know, most Cubans were obviously all Cubans were very anti Castro, but the idea that a large percentage were criminals is, is pretty much history is borne out to be that to be patently false. While there were obviously criminals in the group, the actual number, the, the, the best number that I could find actually estimated to be closer to 1700, which is a far cry from 25,000 that were, that were suggested in the film. It, um, it, it sounds to me like no different than what's going on. Immigrants painted as bad people, you know, uh, criminals, which is not always, and not most of the time is not true. I mean, most immigrants who come to the United States want to come here to do good, to work hard, to provide a better future for their children and, and not for criminal reasons. True. And, and that's something that still to this day is widespread amongst a lot of people who are unaware of of immigration in the U.S. So yeah. um, I would argue I would argue the majority of the people who were who were included in the Mariel boat lift were probably desperate and poor, right? And not necessarily criminals, right? Right. And and so Rod, what was the overall outcome of the Mariel boat lift? So an estimated one hundred and twenty five thousand Cubans fled Cuba to the U.S. during the boat lift some in dangerously overcrowded boats, which actually led to the death of at least 27 individuals attempting to flee, which is not a tremendous number given the 125,000 total, but, you know, still still at least 27 individuals, um, you know, died during the course of this. The Port of Mariel remained opened for unrestricted departure from April 1980 until it was eventually closed in October of that same year. Uh, through a bilateral agreement with the United States. Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting event in American Cuban history. Um, I think um, a lot of detractors of this movie, they feel that the movie portrayed Cubans as criminals, as drug users, and that's not the case. Like we said before, the majority of Cubans who came to the United States came for, uh, you know, honest and good purposes. Mm -hmm. um, And they have led, you know, respectful lives in the United States. They have become some of the most, you know, supportive 
patriotic Americans that I can think of. So um, the depiction of Cubans in this movie uh, was not, you know, received very <laughs> not well. Not entirely accurate. No. Not entirely accurate. Not and, received yeah. very well. And I understand why. Yeah. I mean, my, my family arrived prior to this, uh, yeah, actually prior right. to the act, you know, my, my grandparents and my father arrived in 1963 prior to the statute, but many of the concerns and suspicions that would be held against the, the Castro regime, you know, were still held by members of my family, members of my extended family. And, um, I was far too young to know about the Mariel Boatliff when I was a kid, I was, you know, three years old. Right. But in, in, in speaking to my father, he's, you know, it was, it was viewed as this is a, a desperate attempt, largely a desperate attempt by the poor and the media really uh, painted yeah. it as, as a, as a, as a, a more of a negative Castro is, is emptying his dregs into the country. Well, I can tell you, I know you for over 10 years and you're nothing like Tony Montana. You're not a dreg at all. So, uh, not at all. So as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. So something good came out of the Cubans who, who made it to the United States there and we you're, go. and you're evidence of it. There we are. So thank you for educating us about the Mariel Boatlift, a very interesting bit of history and something that, you know, a lot of people learned about for the first time because of this movie. Well, yeah. Yeah. And now we come to the part of the podcast where we talk about our overall takeaways from the movie. So mm. we like to throw some hot takes out there. We like to, you know, uh, go back and forth about these hot takes. So let me start you off, Rod. Are you ready? Sure. I don't think this is a hot take. I think this is just the way it is. There was a <laughs> complete, complete lack of chemistry between Tony and Elvira. There yes. is absolutely no reason why these two would have ever gotten together, why they would ever gotten married. There's nothing between them. It's absolutely terrible uh, writing. What is going on here? Agreed completely. It's their relationship is antagonistic at the beginning by necessity. It's part of the story. Why did she ever get together with him? Right. I, I mean, I, he kills this, her husband and he shows up at her and he house. Shows up and at says, it, he wakes her coming, up and you're says, you're coming with me. You're coming with me. And she says, okay. Okay. It's, yeah. There's no and, chemistry, and, nothing. Yeah. And we're, we're never after the fact, after the time they're together, we're, we're, there's no reason why they should be together. We're, ne we're never given any sort of they, insight, right? You said, you said, <laughs> I remember we were talking about this and she shows the only affection she ever shows to him is once when once. she, when she laughs, when he puts on the hat, when he puts on a funny hat, she laughs, he puts on a funny hat. And she I think laughs. she's laughing at him rather than with him. Right. Yeah. No, there's absolutely no chemistry at all. And it's an entirely unbelievable relationship. I yeah. Agree with you. Yeah. Here's a big pet peeve of mine. Why are native Spanish speakers constantly talking with one another in English during the entire movie? Even yeah. in, in Bolivia, a Spanish speaking absolutely. country, Tony, right. a Cuban, Alejandro, a Bolivian, they're in Bolivia. There's no Americans around and they're speaking to each other in English. Rod, what right. in the world is going on here? It makes it makes no sense. Look, when when they do when they do the hit in New York, right? When yeah. they're in the car, they're speaking in Spanish. A little bit. So they they choose to speak in Spanish in the car and they subtitle it, but then in so many other scenes, they're just speaking in English. It makes no sense. And when we were doing the research for this episode, we were talking about this episode, we talked about how you know, we we obvious uh, comparisons to The Godfather, right? Where there are scenes in The Godfather where conversations are had in Italian amongst purpose, Italians, amongst Italians on purpose and not subtitled, right? Right. We, we just have to figure out what they're saying. Half of The Godfather Two is in Italian. There's yeah. there's when Italian natives are with each other, they're speaking in Italian. Yeah. I just don't. Manny and and uh, Tony. Look, in yeah, I grew, I grew up, speaking. I grew up surrounded by Cuban, by Cuban relatives. They never spoke in English, uh, and, not and, from my benefit or for anyone else. And, and they, you know, they it would sometimes happen. translate to me or ask me why I didn't understand. Could have made the movie, <laughs> could have made the movie a little bit more believable by having right. the characters yeah. who were native Spanish speakers speak in Spanish. Yeah. All right. So this is a, a big question of mine. How can Tony have done so much cocaine without ever overdosing? I mean, this is sure. crazy yeah. amounts of cocaine. Tremendous amounts. And what I love about this movie is that as the film gets more and more out of control, yeah. his usage increases, right? I, I, his usage of cocaine increases so with, much with, with not only his lack of control over his empire, but just the frenetic 
lack of control that the movie has, right? It's, like it just it 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 all spins out of control. So yeah, but he would have been dead. I I'm not I'm not uh, a dead. doctor. But I feel like it's not it's not healthy the amount. No, it can't be. I mean, Al Pacino's nasal passages were damaged on baby laxatives, so I imagine if he was doing the real thing, it would have been a lot worse. It would have been. Yeah. Um, Rod, as uh, you know, the son of a Cuban who who speaks who speaks Spanish in the the Cuban form of Spanish, does Al Pacino's Cuban accent hold up? Because Al Pacino's not Cuban. So here's the thing: is that I find his accent to be a little harsher than I'm used to. His accent, I think, incorporates in sort of this. Uh, I mean, I don't want to be too. I don't want to be too hard on the guy, but I think his accent incorporates in the accents of a couple of other Latin American countries. Right. Um, the Cuban accent I knew growing up. Now, granted, these were all individuals who had been in the United States for some time. The Cuban accent I always understood it was a little softer. Yeah. Right. Um, that's the best way I can describe it. His accent is, you know. I always know I come to United States. You know, um, it was a little harsh. <laughs> like his I never, character, I never knew harsh. my fam- my I never knew my my Cuban family members to speak with an accent. So his his accent was more pronounced than I'm used to. Right now, maybe it's because the family members that I grew up with had been in the United States in United States for some time. But <laughs> you know, I feel like the other explanation for this could be that my relatives. As far as I know, we're not uh, to say it nicely. We're not Tony Montana. We're not Tony right, Montana. We'll right, just right, say, right. We'll just say it that way. Right. Uh, they they were relatively, you know, a middle or upper middle class right. Cubans who right. came over to the United who came to the United States relatively early after the revolution, and they were not. I would say street rats, perhaps, right? Uh, right. Like but, Tony was, like Aladdin, you know? so like Tony, there may, street rat. Yeah, there may be a cultural difference in the accent that I'm not uh, savvy to. It makes sense. I, yeah. I, I, I hear what you're saying. A socioeconomic difference. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. What do we think happened to Elvira after after the movie? Uh, wow. Can I, can I tell wow. you what, what I think happened? I would love to know this. I've never really thought about this. Three options, you know, three, yeah. three options for Elvira. Let's think about, yeah, let's, let's think about what could Elvira have done. Option number one, she uh, checked herself into rehab and she got her life strained out. Option number two, she overdosed and uh, passed away. Option okay. number three, she found another crime lord and 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 got with the, the other crime lord. I, I hope for option A. I, I do too. I, I'm really yeah. pulling for her because she did break up with him at the end of the movie. She and I'm dumped hoping him at the end. She was ready. She was ready to move on. She and said I, we, I hope that we, she did. Yeah, she said we've become losers. Hopefully yeah. that was a reality check and she went to rehab and she got her life together. Because I want things to work out for somebody. I hope like so. Her. And I, you know, I liked her throughout yeah. the movie. I didn't I didn't find her to be, you know, she took exception with a lot of his behavior. Yeah, and she did. I, I I liked her as a character. She wasn't a bad person. No. So let's 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 hope she figured it out. Let's hope she let's hope she she cleaned herself up. I hope so. I and like fi- I like that result for her. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Option A. And finally, Rod, which critical response do you think is the more correct one? You know, the initial reviews for this movie were largely negative, and the modern reviews consider the movie to be a classic. So now that you know it's been it's been over 40 years since this close to 40 years since this movie was made. What's the right critical response to this movie? What What do you think? And so I, this is such a fraught question. I think so. I, I have a couple. I have a couple of ideas. So, like I mentioned before, right? Many women I know characterize this woman as characterizes this film as very masculine. Uh, yeah. Too too uh, too, too filled much. with machismo. Too right, much. Right. Too much. Right. And they don't find it accessible, which I, I can understand. Actually, yeah. I, I think I understand. So I can see, I can understand the negative feedback from, especially from that point, right? right. And, and I can understand, like the movie's over the top. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. But I would argue, like this movie, this movie is an amazing encapsulation. When we think of the 1980s, this movie is what we think of right we think of especially in the 1980s in miami we think of art deco we think of neon we think of excess i mean the 1980s the reagan era was excess money greed so is the movie a good movie yeah i'll say it didn't stand up for me extraordinarily well on rewatch i didn't love it but 
I you know, do see their visual and historical gems in this movie that I think are important. Yeah, I mean, here's my take on this movie. I can't say that I like this movie. I think I appreciate this movie. I can't say I dislike this movie. I could say that I think there's a version of this movie that could have been made very differently and could have been Godfather territory. I think that mm-hmm. the if the score was better, if um the the chemistry between the the romantic, you know, leads in the movie was better, if um it was a little less uh, profanity filled and a little less uh, violent and if they were speaking in Spanish with each other, I think there was some. <laughs> some I think there was a real, a real chance mm. that this movie could have gone down as a Godfather type of movie. And I don't think it realized its potential. That being said, it stands out as something that's different and hasn't been replicated or done. So no, I respect yeah. it for that. I respect yeah. it for that. And I, I understand that 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 clearly we've discussed your issues with the lack of. Spanish speaking between Spanish speaking characters. Very offended. Um, but I know also you were personally offended in trying to find clips to put oh in this episode. Thank you. Because you can't find a 10 seconds in <laughs> this you. movie with that. And, and we try to be clean in this try, podcast. Try you so cannot hard. find a 10 second clip in this movie <laughs> without some sort of profanity I, or some sort of inappropriateness. Thank so. you for bringing this up. I apologize to our listeners because we usually love to have clips when we talk about the movie and we talk this about the character. Man, this episode's light on clips. Man, it's hard to find clips when there's no seven yeah. dirty words aren't spoken. That's right. Yeah, so no, yeah. I agree with you. I, I do. Do I love this movie? No. Do I hate this movie? No. Am no. I somewhere in between? I, I, yeah, I'm, we I'm could appreciate it. I'm, we could appreciate it without liking it or loving it. Yeah. So that's that's Scarface. That's Tony Montana. We hope that we did this movie justice. We hope you enjoyed uh, the ride we just took you on. Just as a reminder, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast and please try to rate us. Give us a little review. Talk about how Rod is rolls his R's really well. He would love it if you did that. Rod, tell us again, where can you find us? What streaming platforms? Uh, so sure, you can find us on all the major podcast streaming platforms. We're on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Amazon, and et cetera. And uh, that email address, one more time. Sure, is astalaviza at gibney.com. That's H-A-S-T-A-L-A-V-I-S-A at gibney g-i-b-n-e-y dot com so that's going to do it for the first uh, half of our hasta la visa baby podcast heritage series mm-hmm. we did cuba we did cuba with rod, done cuba with rod and now we're going on to israel so next time please join us for a adam sandler movie known as you don't mess with the zohan that's uh, right. we're gonna get we're gonna get into our israeli roots we're gonna talk about everything israel everything um adam sandler a very interesting movie can't say it's great but you should watch it again and get, <laughs> and get ready because the immigration lessons you're going to learn from it are just incredible fantastic Rod, I had a really good time learning about Cuba, learning about uh, a little bit more about your background, and it, it was fun. So um, this was great. Yeah, yeah, I really liked this episode. Good, good, good chemistry. We've got good chemistry, man. Um, yeah, we, we, if we I don't, do. if I don't say yeah. so myself. We think anyway, we do. Sure. Anyway, <laughs> just Tony Montana was brash. I'll be a little brash now too. So, as always, until next time. Hasta la vista, baby. Hasta la vista, baby.